0: You are listening to the Cancer From A to Z podcast with Dr. Rosalind Morrell, episode 29, Surviving Cancer, COVID, and Heart Failure with Jen Singer. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer From A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morrell.
1: These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions.
0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you for downloading this episode because I have another cancer survivor story. On the show today is Jen Singer, and Jen was introduced to me by a mutual friend, and her health journey is absolutely a story of perseverance. Jen Singer has survived cancer, COVID, and heart failure. For years, she was a medical writer for some of New York City's most prestigious hospitals, when she's not working as a ghostwriter, developmental editor, and writing coach, she writes patient friendly ebooks called The Just Diagnosed Guides. These guides provide the newly diagnosed with the information they really need to know right now. She lives at the Jersey Shore, the place, not the TV show. And if you are interested in knowing where to purchase her just diagnosed guides, we will put her website in the show notes for you to check out. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Jen Singer. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's good talking to you. Yeah, same here. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show. When you were introduced to me, it was just amazing what she said about you. And so I am really excited to have you on the show. But I don't know that much about you, and obviously the audience doesn't either. So why don't we just start with you know, a little bit about you?
1: Yeah, so uh, I was diagnosed With stage three non Hodgkin's lymphoma, aggressive B cell, when I was 40 years old in 2007. My kids were eight and 10 at the time. So that added a whole other bit of concern for all of us at the time. I made it through, I had uh, six rounds of chemo in the hospital, and then I still had a little bit of tumor left. It was originally the size of a softball in my left lung. So then I had to have five weeks of radiation. Uh, to get rid of what was left of the tumor and managed to achieve remission and stay in remission because with that kind of lymphoma, it's most likely to come back in the first two years. So I was having PET scans every quarter until we got through that and stayed in remission, still in remission all these years later. And that's great. Yeah. So along the way, I became a medical writer because who, who better to write about <laughs> what it's like to have PET scan than someone who's been in a lot of PET scan machines. That's
0: very true. That's very true. You're right. i just order them, but I've never had one done. So
1: yeah, it's an interesting feeling to be injected with radiation and then have to lie perfectly still. The best part about it for me was that they let you at that time, bring a CD that you could play. And then I just played Springsteen and Because I'm a Jersey girl and made me feel better.
0: So when you were initially diagnosed, so you're going about your life, raising your kids, doing all that stuff. What did you experience?
1: Yeah, so I was diagnosed in June of 2007. However, I started to feel the effects of this the October before looking back on it. I was a soccer coach, was coaching my son's team, and I had played in college. And so I was always, you know, on the field running around with the kids and kicking the ball. And, uh, you know, I, I started to feel like I was what I called falling out of shape. So I was playing tennis every week. I took a lesson every week and every week I felt like I just couldn't, I couldn't get to the ball as fast. I couldn't move as fast. And so in the beginning, Doctors said to me, oh, well, you're middle-aged, you're 40, of course, you're tired, you're a young mom, and, and it went undiagnosed for a long time. All the way until the next May, when I got a chest x-ray, and the doctor in, a, in an urgent care setting said to me that it was pneumonia, put me on Leviquin for two weeks, didn't get any better. And so I went back to him and he told me to go find a pulmonologist because he didn't know what to do for me. So I got the actual report and I didn't know medical ease at that time. I wasn't a medical writer, but I managed to look it up and it said basically possible tumor, you know, recommend PET scan. And so somehow I managed to get in to see a pulmonologist. I didn't have one. And you can imagine as a new patient, that's not easy to get right, a new patient appointment. So I wrote a script to call different pulmonologist offices so that I could get right to the point and not sound as terrified as I was. Mm. What made you think to do that? So I knew enough, I had had, uh, been through the ringer with endometriosis. So, I knew enough about the medical community and calling doctor's offices and, you know, they're the gatekeepers. Obviously, they're trying to protect the doctor's time. And if you sound like you're crazy and terrified and you're not their patient, they're going to try and get rid of you. So, I knew if I had a script and I'm a writer, so I wrote myself a script that stuck to the points of... This is what a doctor told me. This is what the scan said. This is the size of the, you know, and I use the word mass at that point, in my lungs. And thank goodness I did because that doctor got me in the next day. I found out later that I was about two months from death. So can you imagine if I had waited two months to get a pulmonology appointment?
0: No, and I find it so not unbelievable because I've heard this before, but it sounds like you were just initially passed off as, "Oh, you're a tired mom." That's what this is. "Oh, you're getting older, you know, you're just a little worn out from everything."
1: I even had that that one doctor from the urgent care. I would pointed to him and showed that my clavicle was sticking out. And he said, "Oh, well, you lost weight."
0: <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's hard to believe because we're we're trained to Use physical exam and our eyes and our ears to you know pick up on things, and when you see something like that, I mean for me, and I guess because you know now it's um it's my background of being an oncologist, you kind of want to say, okay well, that's a little odd, maybe we should investigate
1: and he didn't and 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 I wonder if it's just in part the nature of urgent care it It was one of those Saturday you know places that you go that their perspective might have been different than my own primary care doctor might have been more invested in me. Right. So
0: you find out that you are, I mean, it's advanced.
1: Yeah, stage three.
0: Stage three. And what happened next?
1: So I got admitted into the hospital. That that pulmonologist, by the way, put my scan up, my x-ray up on the light board and turned to me and said, that's a tumor. We're sending you to the hospital right now. So he pulled it down. He called the hospital. I didn't even have to go through the ER. They had a bed for me upstairs, just in one of the random floors. It wasn't even oncology at that point. And I went through a series of tests. And one of the tests was a needle guided, a CT guided needle biopsy of, of the tumor in my left lung. And that's when I found out they thought it was Hodgkin's lymphoma at that point. So I was in that hospital, it was a local hospital, and they kept telling me how lucky I was because I had Hodgkin's lymphoma and how curable that is, and you're one of the lucky ones. But I was talking to, I know this is strange, but my gynecologist by email at night. I'm in a local hospital. I'm not sure they know what they're doing. This is what they're telling me. What's your advice? And his advice was to go get a PET scan and gave, and he told me about a doctor that he knew out of a teaching hospital in New York City. I live in New Jersey. And I managed to get in to see them and got the PET scan, which confirmed that it was actually non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So imagine I've been told all week long, you're so lucky you have the good cancer This must, it has none before it. It must be bad. You have the bad cancer. And
0: so what is going through your mind at this point? Obviously, I'm sure you're thinking about your family and you're thinking about all what comes next
1: and you maybe didn't know what was going to come next.
0: What was going through your mind at that point?
1: So, there were a couple things going. I knew that the that the information would leak out in the community. We were a very tight-knit community, and I wasn't at the school bus stop in the morning so where where's Jen? And I didn't want my kids to find out from somebody at the school bus stop, "Oh, yeah, I heard your mommy has cancer." So we brought them down to the hospital, the local hospital, when I was first diagnosed, and I showed them the x-ray and I said, "See this blob." this this blob needs needs to be shrunk down and mommy's going to have medicine that's going to make it shrink down and explain that my hair would fall out, which is the most terrifying thing to kids is that part and tried to assure them that everything was was going to be okay. And we did use the word cancer eventually, not right away, but eventually just so they wouldn't hear it from someone else. That was the first thing. The second thing was I got to get this treated. And after I was diagnosed in New York, they were trying to get me a bed in the hospital there because I had to a five day infusion of chemo and it was, you know, it's the atomic bomb. It's our chop and plus bleomycin. And I actually wound up being in the hospital for 10 days because I had some complications from the chemo. So the the whole thing was, how can I get the right treatment? How can I get it as fast as possible? Because this is an aggressive cancer and how can I protect my family from things that people say that aren't always helpful. Right, right.
0: That must have been a really scary time for you.
1: It was terrifying. We also had started housewife construction. So at the same time... <laughs> One of my neighbors said, if this house isn't a metaphor for what's going on with you, I don't know what it is. <laughs> the kitchen was gutted mm-hmm. and and everyone was cooking for us. So it's a great right. time to have the kitchen gutted. Everyone's going to want to cook for you. <laughs> right. But yeah, it was, it was pure chaos in the beginning. And I think I was just running on adrenaline that, you know, just, just to get the right diagnosis, to get the right treatments, to make sure you're doing the right things and to get the kids taken care of. It was June, it was the end of school um so I had to get all of various people take them to where they needed to go um and it of course obviously went through the the summer and into the fall and then in the fall I had the radiation treatments and
0: throughout the process in terms of the chemo and then getting to radiation therapy what did you experience in terms of how much the physicians or the healthcare providers told you in terms of the entire, your disease and how it's treated and the process and the likelihood of cure? I mean, were you given a lot of information? And if so, was it overwhelming? Or did you feel like, you know,
1: they were explaining it really well? And what was that like for you? So at that time, like I said, I wasn't a medical writer. So I didn't know how to do all of that research. And I was um, relying a lot on my doctor who is, I mean, he just emailed me the other day, and he's retired. It's just, he's an empathic doctor. He just did such a good job of answering my questions without hedging bets, (laughs) without, you know, hemming and hawing to tell me what was ahead. He said to me, no heroes. So if, you know, you're in a lot of pain, take pain medicine, because it was, they still aren't to this day sure exactly what was happening, but I was having such sharp pains in my ribs, that may have been the tumor shrinking quickly and pulling nerve endings with it. And also the new causes bone pain on top of that to the point where it dropped me to my knees in front of my children, which was an upsetting, upsetting moment. But I felt like he answered my questions and I did, of course, some Googling, which is never a good idea when you don't know what you're looking for.
0: Exactly, exactly. When did you become a medical writer?
1: So within, you know, I was already a writer. And so I actually, at the time, was blogging about parenthood for goodhousekeeping.com. And so I said to them, I can't pretend that this isn't going on. So they would let me write about my experience with cancer, at least once a week, I called it Cancer Thursdays. And then after that, I started to pitch articles to magazines about like the psychosocial parts of uh, having cancer for uh, there was an article does my cancer count and it's for like Hodgkin's because it's curable or thyroid same reason or something that doesn't involve a lot of chemo or radiation that's easily treatable sometimes those patients feel like well you know my cancer isn't as scary as other people's cancer so it doesn't count and of course it counts. All cancer counts. right? And there is no good cancer or bad cancer. There's just cancer. Very true. (laughs) Very true. So I was writing things like that. And then a, a major New York City hospital was looking to build a team of freelancers to rework their website for patients. They sent out a call for freelancers and I interviewed for it. And I was told there were other people who were more qualified than I was because they were medical writers, but they liked the fact that I had so much empathy and so much understanding of the medical world just from having been a patient that they hired me. And uh, I, I I developed, I did that for several years. And then I decided I was tired of hospitals and shifted to ghostwriting for books and speeches, and you know, jokes on me, because in 2020 I wound up being in hospitals a lot when I got uh, a complete heart block and then heart failure and a pacemaker.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what was the reason for that? What was the cause of that?
1: It depends on who you ask. It was right after I had COVID, classic. In uh, you know, I was one of the originals in February of 2020. I like to say that chemo and radiation filled the barn with dynamite and COVID lit the match. Other people see no connection between COVID and heart failure, but how many patients have the exact same combination of background that I had? The chemo and the radiation alone increased my odds of heart failure, but I was feeling fine. Like I was, you know, exercising and hiking and everything and then had COVID and then My heart started to shut down.
0: Wow. So you're in the hospital again.
1: Yeah. April 2020 in New Jersey, the worst time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What was that like? I mean, what were you thinking at the time?
1: I was so grateful that I had had the experience of having cancer. Because I knew how to navigate my way around that hospital without anyone being able to visit. No one could visit me. COVID lockdown, you were, no one was allowed to come in. So it was just me. And I was in the, the ER first, the pediatric ER, because it's the only room they had available. And they're watching my heart block, shutting my heart, shutting down little by little. I remember they, the, the nurse, obviously, they were running around like crazy because COVID was all over that hospital. And I had to go to the bathroom. And I was like, I'm not going to push the button and ask them to help me get to the bathroom. I knew how to unplug everything. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Take <laughs> myself to the hot- into the bathroom, come back in and plug everything back in. And the oh, nurse wow. comes in, saw what I had done. And he says, it's so nice having cancer survivors here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I guess so. There's a, maybe a little bit of a perk
1: there. <laughs> there's a perk, but I, you know what? I There's a difference between the cardiology floor and the oncology floor, and I learned that very quickly. When they finally got me to the cardiology floor before I was diagnosed with COVID, so they thought I was negative at that point, the nurse came in just and just offhandedly asked me if I had any pain. Now, I'm used to oncology. Okay, she wants something on a scale of zero to ten, and I'm like, oh, it's it's like a four or five, and all of a sudden, seven medical personnel were there, like SEAL Team <laughs> Six, just surrounding me. You know what would mm-hmm. describe? They thought I was I was t- describing a heart attack. I'm like, okay, no, uh, you know, I'll just. I'll be careful about how I report pain. Right, right. To you.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's a different thought process. (laughs) Much different, much different. That's really interesting that you, you know, in terms of you had this level of knowledge and this almost in a sense, for lack of a better word, comfort level, so to speak, in terms of being in that hospital, you knew kind of, you weren't necessarily scared of the buttons and the monitors and and the things like that. So that probably, I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, made that experience, you know, not quite as frightening.
1: Yeah, it felt like a do-over almost. I've spent quite a bit of time in the hospital for cancer. I, the first two rounds were inpatient five days long, first one wound up being 10 days long. I've had my sheriff's scans and pokes and prods. And I know when I get in, and they're trying to take my blood, I say, use a butterfly needle and put it in my hand, because you're not going to find a vein anywhere else. All of that stuff, you know, when you've been through what I've been through. And yes, it was actually, um, it, it was comforting to know that I could be my own medical enforcer is what my family calls me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I knew that, you know, at 7 p.m. and 7 a.m., the nurse shift, I know not to push the button then. And it really makes your your stay in the hospital smoother when you understand how the hospital runs. Yeah. And that's probably you and your knowledge and
0: and things that you had been through. Obviously, that's not everybody's experience. But being in the hospital, it's a whole nother world. You do. You're you're being poked. You're being prodded. Blood is being drawn. Blood pressures are being taken. You're not getting any sleep. <laughs> oh no,
1: do <laughs> not get sleep in a hospital. Yeah. <laughs>
0: there's no sleep going on in the hospital uh-huh. at all. You know, yeah. your, urine is being collected. You name it. There's a lot going on. So when the doctors told you about your about your heart failure, you had been through cancer, and that kind of brings to the forefront of your mind about mortality and things like that. Did you have that same feeling in in things like when you're talking about a major organ that you know that you need to survive, and now they're telling you it's not working properly?
1: So I was lucky enough to have written all of the cardiology pages for that major New York hospital. And uh, so I googled heart failure and found something I had written in 2015. Oh, okay. And I understood heart failure, what that meant, because to a lot of people, heart failure, the word failure, they really need to rename. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's just the failure of your heart to pump enough blood to your organs, but people don't know that. And they they can become terrified by it. And I see that over and over again. I belong to several heart failure boards, support groups online, and people will come in terrified because again, they don't understand. Then they Google it. And we all say, do not go to Dr. Google. Because the, t- the statistics that are out there are not your statistics. They're also, in terms of heart failure, are old. But you really need to go by the prognosis of what your doctor tells you and not what Dr. Google tells you, because they're going to be two different things. So I knew all of this when I got diagnosed with heart failure. And I understood what a heart block was. It's not the same thing as cardiac arrest, it's sort of like, I. it's sort of like the, uh, the lights shutting down in the stadium after a game just very slowly. And and, and I knew that I was going to have to get a pacemaker. And I, I had written about pacemakers. So I wasn't as terrified. But boy, I was still, I was actually kind of angry. I'm like, no, I've been through cancer. I don't I don't have another major thing. That's not fair. You get one big thing in your life. Right. And here I was at 53, having another big thing in my life. Yeah, I can see where it
0: would make you angry. Because in a sense, you're doing all these things. You're taking care of yourself. You've had cancer and you, and you know the medical literature and, and things like that. You're, you're doing all that and you know what you need to be doing. And here you are again with something again. And it's kind of like it's out of your control. There's elements to obviously what our bodies, where it's out of our control what happens.
1: Yes. But I would say that what is in your control, you can concentrate on. And there's a couple things to that. One is where you get treated and by whom, because oftentimes a patient will either wind up with a doctor, you know, because you're suddenly diagnosed with cancer in in the ER or whatever. Um, And you, you stick with that doctor because, well, you know, he or she seems nice and, and they're, you know, they're only a mile away from my house. And, and these are not reasons to stick with a doctor. I wound up switching heart failure doctors I was here in New Jersey and 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 they you know they did a good job of putting my pacemaker in and getting me on medications but I was getting worse and worse and worse. So I switched to a doctor that I knew because I had interviewed him <laughs> in New York and he has turned my health around. I'm much better with him. So get a second opinion. It, you know the more dangerous the diagnosis <laughs> You know, to, to get a second opinion.
0: So the more dangerous the diagnosis, the more opinions you should seek.
1: I think so. And one of the things that people don't realize is you can go, let's say you're in a, a rural area that doesn't have a hospital. You have to go an hour away to the hospital or or you're, even if you're in a suburban area and there's a, a you know local hospital there, find out who the best doctors in the country are treating your condition, especially if it is a rare one. They're more rare, especially in cancer. Seek out those doctors and you can take all of your tests and your doctor's notes and go to a Mayo Clinic or wherever, Cleveland Clinic, and have a, a doctor review everything to confirm your diagnosis and also the treatment plan.
0: Do you think that for those in similar situations when you're in the hospital or you're in front of a healthcare provider. What do you think about asking as many questions as you can? What do you, what do you think about that?
1: Yes and no. I think that you should ask questions, but they need to be smart questions. Mm. Okay. And they need to be very specific to your situation don't pressure a doctor into giving you your life expectancy because they really don't know. However, you can ask questions like, what are our one-year goals? What are our five-year goals? What are our 10-year goals? Not when you're first diagnosed, usually. This is after you've, you've started treatments, you can ask these questions. I would also hesitate to look for the accusatory tone in your voice as a patient. Some people feel like the medical community is out to get us. That is not the case. They are there to help. That's why they went into medicine. They can miss things. And you should totally get a second opinion. You should back things up, ask ask questions. But it shouldn't feel like it's, you know, they're being grilled with a light over their head. You had written for
0: the hospital, right? And then when did you start your just diagnosed guides? Let's talk about those.
1: So, that came to me last year after now I had, you know, I'm coming up on my third year. April will be three years with heart failure because I kept seeing those patients online terrified and going to Dr. Google and getting information that confused them and scared them and also from other patients, which, you know, there it's a double-edged sword talking to other patients because on the one hand you will find other people who feel the same way that you do. And you can get support that way. They might be having the same treatment, they might have had the same side effect to the same medication, all of that is helpful. But sometimes people put their own issues on you if they're also a patient. So it's, well, for me, I just exercise and lost weight and stopped smoking. And now my heart failure is better. I'm like, well, that's good for you. But that's not why I have heart failure. <laughs> you know, I was already doing all of that. So I felt that what I could do is keep patients who, from that fear and that confusion and write it from a patient's point of view who also understands medical writing and with a little bit of humor and a whole lot of empathy. So I created the Just diagnose Guides and I started with the heart failure book I am now working on a lymphoma book. I'm going to eventually run out of diseases I've had and (laughs) we'll work on other diseases, but I've written about so many of them for hospitals. I know what to do. And then I created two main books. One is how to be sick for patients, because we're taught how to be healthy. We're not taught how to be sick. And then how to support someone who's sick, which so many people are always, you know, I don't know what to do for somebody who's sick. I actually had a doctor tell me that um, his friend got cancer and he didn't know what to say. And he's a medical doctor. Oh,
0: wow. Wow. Well, I'd like to kind of, uh, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. What is your advice for those that are interacting with someone who has been diagnosed, whether it's cancer or some other illness? What is your advice in terms of how to... Talk to them and interact with them.
1: So, we have been taught a series of platitudes that do not help, like stay strong and be positive, which there are no studies linking your attitude to curing cancer. We have been taught to say things like, you know, there are other people who have it worse than you, or it's always darkest before the dawn, or God never gives you more than you can handle. God absolutely gives you more than you can handle. So, those things are not helpful, and they also other people. It makes it feel like, oh, well, you have this thing, so you deal with it. So, one of the the phrases that I say that you could use anytime, at any point from just being diagnosed all the way into remission is how is it for you today? And the reason for that is because you're not putting your thoughts or feelings on the patient and because it varies from moment to moment. One moment, it might be I'm scared because I'm having a port put in tomorrow. And another moment is I'm excited because the kids and I are going for ice cream right now. And you don't want to have to spend When you have cancer, you don't want to spend all of your time talking about the cancer, but that's what winds up happening because you run into somebody at the supermarket and they want to know how you are. But if you say, how is it for you today? Then they don't have to talk about the cancer if they don't want to, or they can, and they can be honest about it for a change.
0: Right. I really like that. I think that's really, really actually good. I I like that a lot. Did you put that in in your just diagnosed guide?
1: It's in the how to support someone who's sick.
0: And, you know, in all honesty, I think it's it's quite difficult. And it, and it brings up a lot of personal things for that person who is not experiencing the illness. It can be quite, I can imagine, difficult. And you don't know what to say. And you don't know what to do. And unfortunately, people will run in the other direction, so to speak, Mm, sometimes. And it could be even someone as
1: close to you as a partner or a spouse. I had friends disappear because at 40, especially, you know, I just turned 40. And everyone kept telling me, you know, you're supposed to be feeling old now because you turned 40. But everyone kept telling me how young I was because I was half the age of everybody else on the oncology floor. Everyone else was 80. And so it was, a, it was a strange time. But what I would say for any caregiver, especially the closer you are to the patient, and this I have in the support book, be careful not to think, well, the patient has it worse than I do, and therefore my needs don't exist. You have to take care of yourself too. And it it is affecting you, especially if it's your spouse, if it's your mother, if your child. It's obviously affecting you as well. So get yourself whatever help that is that you need because you have to be strong for the patient. But that also doesn't mean that you don't have feelings. You do. And, you know, there's no suffering Olympics. Everybody has their issue related to cancer, whether it's the patient or the people right around them.
0: And what advice do you have for? Healthcare providers.
1: Mm. Please, please, please be careful what you say. Think it through because you are all around patients all the time and you're in medicine and you are thinking of things often from a very practical point of view, which you should. But the phlebotomist who said to me, non Hodgkin's, that's the bad cancer, right? My father had that. The cancer didn't kill him. The chemo did. Mm. Wow. While I was in chemo. Please be careful what you say. Remember that the patient doesn't have the medical background that you do most of the time and that they are raw and scared. And you can do very simple things to make them feel less raw and less scared. That's it. And don't tell them how to feel. But if you could treat patients like you do a stage, so if you're an actor or an actress in a stage, the closer you get to the stage, the quieter you are if you're in the back. And then you get down to business when you get on the stage. You can go into the green room and say all you want to all the other doctors and everything, but when you're out there, be careful what you say.
0: When you do speak, People are are really listening and they're taking it all in and it it really does matter. And, And sometimes it can just be a few words that you say that will make all the difference in the world for a patient, especially when they're coming in your door and they are freaked out and scared. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much and it doesn't take a lot of time either. And it can be just a few words and they are just so grateful and so thankful. It's like you put my mind at ease. And sometimes that's all that they, that's all that they want in that moment in time for you to say, I hear you. I see you this, here's what's happening, but we can do this. We're a team,
1: all that. And it's the gestures too. So that gynecologist I mentioned that I was on emailing because he was so empathic and so understanding I was on an email basis with him. So right before I had a hysterectomy for endometriosis and they had wheeled me into the OR and they were getting me ready to go. And the anesthesiologist said, we need to wait because Dr. Goldman's going to come in and he's going to want to hold your hand. And with that, the doors open, he comes in and he held my hand while they put me under. What a simple gesture that went a long way and no wonder i would refer him to anyone
0: right so yeah really good advice and good good things to remember i agree with you i, I going back to doctor google i mm-hmm. agree i think that's one of the really one of the last places you should go <laughs> you should go for medical advice so where can people find your just
1: diagnose guides so it's at justdxguides.com The lymphoma one's coming out soon. Well, Jim, this has been fantastic. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for doing this for people. You know, this is exactly what we need to hear from doctors. What a great resource. Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you really enjoyed today's episode with Jen Singer. I think her story is absolutely amazing, and she's a, just a, a very wonderful and amazing person. If you're interested in knowing more about her Just Diagnosed guides, we will put a link to her website in the show notes. And as I leave you at the end of every episode, be well. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morrell.